Uh, welcome to Element if you are new. Sorry about all that. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you will get some notes to go a little bit deeper as well as some questions to go deeper. On the front, you can doodle and make some notes when I get boring. If you have a smartphone, you can... That never happens. <laughs> if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, click on More and then Events in Uversion. You will get uh, sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And it says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with the fever. That's Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and love and serve you. That we would understand that you have first loved us and blessed us, and you came to serve. And that we, in turn, would see that and live in ways that glorify you by how we live and serve others. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing a series that's taking us right up through Easter this year. It's all about the authority of Jesus. We do this because in 2014, we took the entire year to go through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of that... Jesus comes down off of this mount, comes down from preaching this sermon on that mount, and he shows 14 distinct ways he had all authority. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you a little condensed thing about that authority up front and then move on to talk about servanthood more towards the end. I think it all goes together with what we're talking about today. I believe that in our lives, wisdom is going to be shown by how we not only trust Jesus' authority in the world around us, but in our day-to-day lives as well. When you read the scriptures, the scriptures will teach you that the key to wisdom is loving God, fear of God, respecting of who he is. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, it also tells you that knowledge puffs up where love builds up and this gives you the idea that knowledge must turn into wisdom and wisdom is shown by how we are going to love one another and if you study the scriptures all day long and you memorize the sermon on the mount but you don't love god you are going to be arrogant and obstinate the goal of studying scripture is not to get more and more knowledge per se it's not to outquote one another it's so we would love our neighbor it's so we'd serve people and most importantly glorify god by living under his authority that's the point Anytime you study the scriptures and you no longer have love of God in mind, you miss the point and it becomes what the Bible calls idolatry. Even studying the Bible can become idolatry if we do not plan to live it out. This is one of the great problems of God in every age, not just our age, but it happened in Jesus' day as well. Guys, look, if we study the scriptures rightly, we will end up loving Jesus. We'll be astounded at his teaching and his authority. So Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, and the first part of Matthew 8 covers three events, all of which entail a healing of some sort. The first case is somebody who has leprosy in Matthew 8, 1 through 4. We looked at that two weeks ago. The first four verses give you a report of how this man with this horrible disease, leprosy, was healed and also made clean. And the miracle demonstrates that Jesus not only has the authority to heal, but he could also fulfill the law and make people clean. The law declared someone with leprosy is unclean. They could not go into the temple to worship. They could not even be around their own family. So Jesus, in this, after the Sermon on the Mount, shows he has authority to cleanse this man of his sin, to make him righteous again, and sends the man to the priest to prove who he is. 
is. In going to the priest, it would show two things. Number one, that Jesus was the Messiah because he was curing and cleansing leprosy. And secondly, so the man could reinstate this guy into temple worship so he'd be back connected to his community again. The second case we looked at last week is verses 5 through 13. Is a Roman soldier. He is called a centurion because he was the commander of a hundred men. He comes to Jesus on behalf of a servant who is paralyzed. And we see the power of Jesus' spoken words, that Jesus has authority in the words that he says. By his command, he's able to heal the sick man. Jesus did not have to go to the guy's house, didn't have to do some song and dance, be like, you are healed, didn't have to rub mud in the guy's eyes, anything like that. All he did was speak, and he probably didn't even need to do that to heal this guy. And what you do is you get a short little lesson on faith because Jesus says the faith that was demonstrated by this non-Jew, this non-Israelite, this centurion, this Roman officer was greater than all that he had seen in all of Israel. Now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. The third thing we get to today is Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. She is lying in bed with a fever, and most commentators believe because of the area of the world this is, that this is probably malaria. Now I have, I, I have had malaria, believe it or not. I thought I was going to die. The only good thing that comes from malaria is I actually cannot give blood because it always is in your blood. So one of the questions on the thing, have you ever had malaria? Yes, you can't give blood. I'm like, yay, no needles. <laughs> malaria is terrible. We're in this mistrip in Thailand. The day before we leave Thailand, I am sitting on the curb. It's like 100 degrees outside, and I'm just shivering like this. And, our, and the guy who is walking us through town, he's all... Do not let them see you in the airport like that. They will not let you get on the plane. I'm like, if we get there, my fever kind of breaks. I'm just sweating like air conditioned. And they're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like sweating like nothing, like I'm mewling drugs or something. I just look like it's horrible. I get home, go to the doctor. The doctor looks all my symptoms. He goes, yeah, you have malaria. He prescribes me malaria meds. Malaria meds are worse than malaria. You take these things, I can't hear, I can't see. At one point, I end up puking my guts out in the middle of the street that I lived on at the time. One of my neighbors comes out and sees me. He's like, oh, my goodness. And I'm like, I can't hear. I can only go. I'm like, get John Warren. John Warren is our bass player. He's the chairman of our board. He's a good friend of mine. He lived down the street from me at the time. He goes and gets John. John puts me in his car, drives me to my doctor, puts me in the, the doctor, puts me in a room. I'm holding the, I know, crazy story, right? I, and I'm holding on to his garbage can. I'm like puking in the garbage can. And the doctor walks in. He's all, oh takes my meds, and walks back out the door. And you can't sue me. I didn't do anything. In the end, I will tell you, I lost like 45 pounds. I don't have 45 pounds to lose. It was, and my, my wife makes fun of me. She, she goes, the craziest thing, goes, she goes, all of us would have wanted that diet, except for you. So anyway, anyway, at, at, in the end, it's like everything that came out of any orifice on my body at one point was green and flaky. It was, it, was, it was the worst. I wish I could have been like Peter's mother-in-law and Jesus would have healed me. Suffice it to say, Matthew 8, verse 14. Now, now that you all have the picture in your mind of what this is like, you might think, yeah, my mother-in-law needs to get that. No, she doesn't. Okay. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with the fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And I read that and think, so would I. <laughs> so would I. That evening, they, uh, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And this is speaking of the Messiah's authority. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
So as soon as Jesus heals her, she gets up and serves him. Then Matthew records how these demon-possessed people and sick people were brought, and Jesus heals them. He quotes Isaiah 53, 4, about how the Messiah would come and take away our illnesses and our diseases. Matthew's gospel is very Jewish in how it is written. It is clear he's taking these first three cases in the beginning of chapter 8 to support the message that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The ultimate point of Isaiah 53 is the Messiah was going to die for the transgressions of God's people. He was going to rescue and save God's people. All this is accomplished at the cross of Jesus, that he would take all the sins of the world upon himself. And in taking care of the sin problem, the Messiah has the authority to take care of the effects of sin. And this is why you see him going out and healing these people in this way. Jesus is very clear in his own teaching that the decay we see in our world, which is such a disparity from how God created the world, in Genesis 1 and 2, the shalom, the peace of God, all these wonderful things, all the disparity we see in our world today is because of sin. It's because of sin in our fallen nature. And so Matthew, when you read it as a whole, is pointing to the cross of Jesus. Jesus, he heals the leper. He heals a servant of the Roman centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals countless other people, all prior to the actual historic atoning death on the cross. But the cross is the basis for all the healings that he did. And by doing these things, Jesus is showing his authority as the Messiah who had come to restore lost order to what God had originally intended. And this is where the Gospel of Matthew is going. This is what you must see that Jesus is doing. And I think there's also other things you see in how Jesus heals people. You see humility. You see compassion in Jesus. Jesus doesn't stay up on the mountain where he gave the sermon and expect everybody to come to him like a lot of self-centered people do. He doesn't come down from the mountain and say, I'm just going to go straight to Jerusalem because that's where the important people are. No, Jesus does what God always does. He seeks out lost and broken people. He began to deal with human need at its lowest level. Leprosy, paralysis, fever, mother-in-laws, all that. All individuals who are suffering. When, when someone with affliction comes to Jesus, he responds willingly. He responds on a personal level. He touches the person with leprosy. Somebody nobody else would touch. Jesus touches him and he makes him clean and fit for temple worship. He heals the servant of a hated Roman. No Jewish teacher would talk to a Roman and yet Jesus does. And he heals this guy's servant. And then Jesus, gasp, touches a woman who in the eyes of many people in this day didn't count. And not only was it a woman, it was Peter's mother-in-law. And you got to wonder if Peter's going, it's okay, Jesus, you can let this one go. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't go over well in any service. Uh, What you see is this picture that begins to emerge of Jesus and how how he uses this authority. He doesn't hesitate to take hold of people's sins and all the effects of sins. And what he gives people back is compassion. When Jesus heals people, it shocks people. But even those people who were healed sometimes were like, wow, look what Jesus did for me. They still got mad at him when Jesus did the same thing for somebody else that they didn't deem worthy. Like, how dare he do that for somebody else? Jesus has all authority to do what he did. That's what Matthew wants you to see. But I also want to talk to you about something a little different today as well. And I think that's the thing, how Peter's mother-in-law gets up and begins to serve Jesus. And I know it might be a little left turn for you, but I I don't think it is. I think I've shown you Jesus' authority over sickness and why. But the passage we look at today has been convoluted by certain people. And they have used it to say that a woman's job when they're healthy is to serve men. 
That's, that's a woman's job. So I'm going to flesh this out a bit for you. So Jesus entered Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with the fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. And that's the case. Some people have said women should serve men. If they're healthy enough, get up. They're less than us. They need to serve men. Crazy, right? Crazy. Here's Oh, yeah. Here's the thing in one sense, though, right? They're right, but not based on this passage. And before you stone me, I also want to say men should also serve women. That's, this is the point. And what's the most important about this passage, if we emulate Peter's mother-in-law, is we should all be serving Jesus. And by serving Jesus, we will begin to serve one another. Too often, we want to take bits and pieces of the Bible and twist it to make it agree with us, and we miss the meaning because we're too consumed with our own desires. What does Jesus desire for us? God gets glory. We live in great joy by how we love him and serve one another. That, that's it. So just agree with me on this passage that this is about Jesus' authority to heal sickness. And let's some, spend some time on this talking about what it truly means to trust Jesus and how we serve him and how we love one another and submit to one another because of his authority. I think we can learn a lot in this. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. I'm, trust me, I'm bringing it all together in the end. You'll be amazed at how this all works out. I'm a professional. I'm good at this. Okay. Uh, so Jesus tells this parable about servanthood in Luke chapter 17. And it's not a parable a lot of people like. They don't read it. They just kind of skim over it. But it's all about the heart of wanting to be served rather than serving. Luke 17, verse 7, Jesus says this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, a lot of people have a hard time with that because they're like, why would Jesus say that? Jesus was Mr. Servanthood. Why, why would Jesus do those things? We do not like the word unworthy, though we are all unworthy. We don't like the master's expectations. We do not like the word commanded because it sounds like someone has authority over us. Go figure, right? We, we ask these questions because our vision is so skewed when we come to the scriptures. We think, why shouldn't the master fix dinner for the servants? We do that because we are scattered. We are turn everything towards ourselves, so we don't actually see the point that Jesus is talking about. Saying, why doesn't the master serve the, the servants? That is exactly what Jesus is addressing here, that self-focus. This isn't a story about labor relations. Jesus is addressing our tendency to be over-impressed with how hard we are trying, especially when it comes to serving others. Like, oh, I'm a servant. Did you see how hard I was serving? I was ser- how come nobody said thank you? People need to- I'm working really hard. I'm such a servant. People should see how much of a servant I-, I was in the field working all day. God owes me. That's what we do. Do you think Peter's mother-in-law got up and was like, man, my daughter really married down. He needs to start serving me. No, she gets up and she starts to serve her Lord because Jesus is her Lord. Humanity has sinned so entwined into who we are that we curve everything towards ourselves. We bend everything back towards us. We make it all about us. Augustine, the early church father, coined this term called incurvatus. 
incurvatus. And it's about how we turn everything towards ourselves. This is what he says. Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself, that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them. And he talks about how that's plain between either people who think they're righteous or hypocrites. He goes, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God for its own sake. It says that we will even use Jesus to try and get what we want because we think it's Jesus' job to give us everything we think we want. Like, I prayed for this, I wanted this, Jesus didn't give it to me, therefore God failed. He said that's how we tend to look at our lives. When, when we tend to walk in grace and we understand who Jesus is and we surrender our lives to him, we start to live out that call in our lives. Almost immediately after that, we have this tendency to twist things and get irritated. If somebody doesn't see how hard we're serving or how hard we're giving and somebody maybe wants to take advantage of us. I've been sick. I'm not serving. Jesus needs to get in line. Our curvatus, our pride, is always bent towards sin. It always pulls us away from truly living as Jesus calls us to live. And the only way to truly combat that is what Jesus teaches throughout the scriptures. We are meant to serve, like Peter's mother-in-law got up and served. You know, people will go see therapists and counselors and pastors all the time for anger issues and addiction problems and anxiety. Hardly anybody goes to see any of these people for pride problems because we're too proud. Right? Nobody does it, except for my friend Luke. My friend Luke, all the time, is calling me going, hey, I think i got a pride problem. He's, he used to wear this shirt that said, I am meek and lowly. And I said, if you were meek and lowly, you wouldn't wear a shirt that says how meek and lowly you are. And he's like, oh, and then he threw it away. Cause, and then I feel bad. But, but, that's, but that's Luke. He's always like, man, I don't want to be prideful. He's like the only person I know that is like that. There's this other parable that Jesus tells. You might have heard it. Uh, he talks about a Pharisee who goes into the temple to worship. And there's this tax collector that comes in as well. And the Pharisee starts to pray. He sees the tax collector. He's like, dear God, thank you. I'm not like this horrible tax collector here. And that's how he starts to pray. And when we hear this parable, we're like, how horrible is that? That guy thought he was better than other people. That guy thought he had to work out his own salvation. This guy was, this guy was horrible. Thank God I'm better than that guy who thought he was like everybody else or better than everybody else. That's incurvatus. It's incurvatus. We think we're better than that guy that judged everybody else. Think of the presidential candidate that ran for election that, that whoever your person was that lost, right? Think of the other guy. You're like, oh, how terrible. Because you think that person is worse than you. That is incurvatus. You think, we think, I think people around us are worse than us. Incurvatus. How do you combat that? Serve. You begin to serve. Martin Luther, the church reformer, said this, What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. If you're a teenager, that means when you serve in your house, when you serve your parents, when you do the things they ask you to do and the things they don't ask you to do because you know they need to be done, that's like serving God in your home. If you're married, how you serve your spouse, how you gift them, how you love them, even things they don't even ask for, you just go and do, that is like serving God up in heaven. When you're at work and those co-workers that drive you crazy, how you serve them, how you give to them, that is like doing it for God up in heaven. That's what Martin Luther says. This, this week, my gospel community was meeting together and we got on the subject of Disneyland because someone was there recently. And one of the people said that they, they, wanted to, they went to the store there to buy a candle because they wanted a candle that smelt like the parts of the Caribbean. And I'm like, ooh, why do you want a mold-scented candle, right? <laughs> 
because that's what it smells like. Well, apparently, they go into the store, the store, and they asked for a candle, and the guy was like, we don't sell mold-scented candles. And I'm like, exactly! Because <laughs> you got to go online to get one of those. You know, I have, had, I have had friends that work at Disneyland, and they said when you, when you work there, one of the main things you're supposed to do is serve. There, if somebody asks you a question that you've heard a hundred times, you answer it like you never heard it before. If someone needs directions and you're available to, you're supposed to take them where they want to go. It's all about serving. Apparently, this guy didn't get the memo, um, right? But, but that's, that's the thing. Uh, in one of Ortberg's books, I don't remember what it was, he tells this story of a young guy who worked at Disneyland. He worked on this ride called the Jungle Cruise. You might have heard the story. I don't know. The most common question asked of the Disneyland staff about the ride is, how long is this ride? How long is this ride? The standard answer is supposed to be this. The Jungle Cruise is an exciting adventure ride that lasts 10 minutes. They will say that every time, no matter how many times someone asks you the question. Well, apparently, this guy woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Something's going on. So this couple says, you know, how long is this ride? And he says, three days. <laughs> so this couple gets out of line. They, they go, they go leave the resort. They go back to their Disneyland hotel where they were staying, and they checked out. It was their honeymoon. They grab their luggage. They go back into Disneyland. They get in line for the three-day cruise. Yeah. What do you think happened? The next day, there's a different employee standing there going, the Jungle Cruise is an exciting adventure ride in the last 10 minutes, right? Think of this. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What makes Jesus' kingdom work is serving. I mean, it's a glory of God, obviously, worshiping who he is, but we are meant to be a serving people. To become the people God intends for us to be means we serve. The kingdom of God is one of those places where if you don't want to serve, you don't really want to be there. You don't. We are told in the scriptures that God will look at his faithful servants and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I think the point of Luke 17 is that we're going to be a people who say, oh, no, 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 no. I was only learning to love you back. And I probably didn't even do that so well. I think God will say, well done to faithful employees who give themselves diligently to their work, even though it never earns much human recognition. Even when your boss never says that you just, you just give and you serve and you love. I think you'll say it to workers who know they could have climbed higher or faster if they cut corners or manipulated others. I think you'll say it to two-parent families and single parents who cared for kids and bathed them and fed them and cleaned up after them when they were tired or when they became teenagers. And it's like, I just want to kick them out of the house through all of that, especially when no one's looking. I think you'll say it to mothers and fathers and mothers-in-laws who give so much time and effort and energy to love others for Jesus even when nobody sees it. I think he will. But I think we have to ask ourselves the hard questions, which is, are you being a servant in your relationships? Are you being a servant at your workplace? Are you being a servant in your neighborhood? Are you being a servant even in your own home? Do you view everyone around you as someone who owes you something? Are you always looking for someone to take care of you, always thinking your problem is someone else's fault? Or do you live in gratitude? Do you live in a place where you're thankful for everything that you've been given, whether big or small, and you look for ways to give to others because that's servanthood. Right before Christmas, I I hit some of these what-in-the-world questions. And and the verse that I hit that gives a lot of people pause is Ephesians 5.22. And it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. People freak out about that. But they fail to see the beauty in it. Let me first say, if, you, if you're new, you never heard that verse before, it does not teach, and the Bible does not teach, that women are inferior to men in any way. Uh, Paul, the guy who wrote this, is always quoting the creation account as to why people are equal. 
but right before Ephesians 5.22 is Ephesians 5.21, because that's how numbers work. Uh, and this is what it says in Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then 5.22 says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Do you know the word submit actually in the Greek isn't even in verse 22? It's inferred from verse 21. It comes in together. Then you go 525. Husbands, love your wife, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy. Verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The whole teaching of the passage in Ephesians is to love and serve the people around us by placing others' needs ahead of our own out of respect and reverence and authority for Jesus. Jesus, who gives his life for us, the ultimate act of love and sacrifice. This passage in Ephesians is written to a whole group of people, a whole group of people in real space and time. It is not meant to be some abstract concept. There are a lot of people being addressed with those words. The church is being taught how to live in the world in such a way that when people view how we live and how we love and how we serve Jesus, that they would see what Jesus is really like. It can almost be translated as be responsive to, tend to the needs of one another. I then talk to you about this verse, 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is a way of saying you're giving yourself to one another. It is mutual love and submission and, and reverence for one another. This is what I said, the Song of Solomon says this very beautifully, where the woman says in Song of Solomon 6.3, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. You're giving yourself away. Someone is giving themselves to you. It is how it is meant to work in God's kingdom. In a non-romantic way, I think it can also be about friendships, that we are meant to entrust ourselves to one another in communities centered around the gospel because we are all under the authority of Jesus. We are called to love one another like God loves the world. The way God loves the world is this word called agape. John 3.16, I call it the Bible verse because there's always that crazy guy in the corner of the football stadium going, John 3.16! What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This, This is the idea of how God loves the world. We're supposed to love one another and the world around us the way that God loves the world. One writer puts it like this. Agape is a particular kind of love. Love is often seen as a need, something we get from others. Agape is the opposite. Agape gives. It gives. Agape is not something that loves somebody because you see them as worthy. They've done enough so you feel like they're worthy enough for you to love them. He says, agape makes them worthy by the strength and power of its love. Agape does not love somebody because they're beautiful. They've reached your standard. They've done whatever you wanted them to do. He says, agape loves in such a way that it makes them beautiful by the power of its love. It says there's a love because of love in order to, a love for the purpose of, and then there is love, period. That's agape. Agape doesn't need a reason. Agape just loves. And too often, we come to the scriptures, and we're trying to read our own biases into the scriptures, making the text say what we wanted to say. Jesus entered Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with the fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. What if we read the scriptures without a bias filter other than understanding the love and the authority and the redemptive call of Jesus? What if when Jesus touches us, we let go of all of our rights and simply begin to serve him by serving others without wondering what we're going to get in return? What if we treated others as if they were the people we wish that they were? What if we prayed for them, no matter how mad we were, to become that person and we love them that way? even with all of their flaws. I mean, if you're on the other end of this type of love, which is more motivating to you? Being reminded of all of your flaws and all your failures or being loved and drawn into what you're called to be? 
See, that's how God loves us. He calls us and draws us. Sure, we have sin in our life, and God is not afraid to point out our sin. But God is always drawing and pulling and moving us to the people that we are meant to be. I think if we are truly going to live as people God calls us to be, I think we've got to be like Peter's mother-in-law. Not like your mother-in-law. I don't know what she's like, but like Peter's mother-in-law. Where we can, we get up, we begin to serve. Why? Because that's the good news of the gospel. It's a get to you. It's a one. We've been saved. And so we get to serve. And we get to live out like Jesus did. If anyone is entitled in this entire world, it would be Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Philippians 2, 5-8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that means in very nature of God, in very nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus comes, lives, dies, rises from the grave. Yes, as an example, but more importantly, our substitute. Our substitute. He is the one who makes all things new. We have got to be a people who let go of our perceived rights and begin to live under his authority. Because when we live under his authority, we will not see people taking advantage of us. We will see that we are living for him. How we love one another. We will not sit there and say, how come nobody ever thanks me for working this hard, doing all these things? Look, you should thank other people when they do nice things for you. I need to be better at that. But is that the only reason you serve? If that's what it is, then a thank you becomes your God. We must be a people who serve because we understand what our great God calls us into, that he has first loved us, and he has first blessed us, and he has first redeemed us, and he has first served us. And we become a people who go and live those same things because we want to be like him. We want to show the world who God is by what we do. Not because that makes God love us more, but because God has already loved us. So we simply live in a way that shows who he is and this great love that we have been given. And the main way we do that is serving one another. Because a lot of times when we serve one another, it gets rid of our hypocrisy. It makes us humble. It helps us to understand who God was and what Jesus did when he went through when he was on this earth. Jesus gave and gave and gave. I'll tell you, I I cannot imagine God of the universe in human flesh allowing humanity to lay its hands on him and nail him to a Roman cross. I cannot imagine. And yet that's what God does to rescue and redeem his people, not because we're so good, not because God can't live without us, but so he could rescue and redeem us that he could remove all that stood between us and him and us and each other. Our God is simply that good. This is what we remember in communion every single week. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because when you take communion, if you take communion, remember, you have been saved to serve. Because in serving, you bring glory to God. You love other people as God is calling you to love them. I think it starts in our homes and moves out to our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our friendships and everything we go into. Today, start serving just in your home. And then in your workplace, start moving it out. Practically begin to live that out so the world sees the goodness of who God is. The man's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion to be some deacons and elders in the back. Maybe you're in a place today where you have a hard time serving, where you... It's, it's like you feel like everybody's always taking advantage of you and you feel like you're always the victim. They would love to pray with you about that. 
uh, begin to understand how good our God is and that our focus needs to be upon him and not upon ourselves and, and what we are doing, but upon him and what he has done, because that will change our motivation for everything. It'll change how and why we do everything because our eyes are where they're supposed to be. There's offering boxes inside them on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done, so you actually have to get up and do it. But we believe that you know, part of serving and loving and giving is that we, we do give. Uh, there's some food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat maybe this week. Grab, you know, take somebody out to lunch and sit down and talk with them and ask some of these questions. You know, wh- where do you find it hardest to serve? Who in your life is someone you feel like is just never saying thankful and they're always taken? Sometimes, I'll tell you, the best way to serve somebody is point out when they do that. Don't just, don't just be someone who's like, well, I'm going to continue just to be run over. That, that's not serving. That's allowing somebody else to not live in the call that God has placed in their life. So it's okay for you to sometimes to call people out on their garbage. You should do that. It's very therapeutic. <laughs> At least for me. But in the end of that, we must still come back to the place where we still serve. I mean, I, I, I look at our world today, and I'm just, because I don't know. You know, I, I get so freaked out. This is why we've got to live under Jesus' authority, because he's the one that's in control. But I look at all these marches and angry people and nobody wanting to listen to the other side and everybody. I mean, both sides are like this. And I'm thinking, what if we actually just stopped all this and began to serve one another and pray for one another? What would happen? Right? <laughs> Starts with you. It starts with you. Not if they're going to do it first. It starts with us, as God's people, being peacemakers in the world. So let's be the peacemakers. Let's start. Why? Because we love Jesus. Because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, teach us to be your people in this world. To live in such a way that the authority that you have over our lives becomes paramount in everything that we do that we trust you above what we perceive to be our own rights. God, I know in in our world today, and maybe in people in this room, we are so upset and fearful. And I ask that your spirit would begin to take away that fear because of your authority. That you would take away the anger and the resentment that sometimes we feel and replace it with a deep abiding understanding of what you have done to rescue and save us. That we would stop looking at the world through the lens of our own incurvatus. And we'd begin to see it as you see it. We ask that even in the midst of what's going on today, you would enable us to see what you see. That you are weaving everything together in your sovereignty. That you can make something beautiful even out of the midst of our sin. So I ask that you would do that. That you would change us so we would live and love and give and serve because we understand how much you have lived and loved and given and served your people. We understand, Father, how deep your love is for us. And that love would change us to love one another. We ask this in your son's good name.